So tonight, uh, it's my pleasure to be able to speak to you, and thank you for, to Pastor Ron for the opportunity. And so tonight I want to talk about bewilderment, bewilderment, navigating and thriving in God's mysterious purposes. My alternative title for this was actually The Tabernacle of God, Navigating Cognitive Dissonance and Theodical Dialogue in Liminal Spaces, but I opted for the simpler or to, to borrow a title from a research article that I reread recently, Liminal Transitions in a Semiotic Key, something musicians might enjoy. Um, in our days, we have a real opportunity to make Jesus known, amen, because the world's acting kind of funny and kind of weird, and so even for Christians, the times are a-changing, right? And, uh, and so we, we, we are often sometimes in a state of um, bewilderment as to what is going on, what's the Lord doing. Um, there are many people who believe it's the last of the last days um, and uh, try to sort of fit all of the different events that are happening into some aspect of Bible prophecy. And, um, and uh, that's interesting. Um, these are bewildering times, though. Do, I, do you agree, or you know, just kind of? It's uh, these are strange times. I don't think uh, in my short life that I've seen quite such strange times ever. Um, maybe I should call this "How to Survive Changing Times." The first question I want to ask you, because I am talking tonight about cognitive dissonance, which is bewilderment, right? <clears throat> what is it? Well, put very simply, it's a feeling of bewilderment or puzzlement, the feeling of trying to make sense of life when stuff changes out of the norm, right? So something is out of the norm right now, not only in America, but also in the rest of the world, right? So it leaves us in this state of questioning, what is going on? We're bewildered, a state of cognitive dissonance. Sometimes people are bewildering themselves too, right? Uh, changes are bewildering and puzzling. Sometimes the Lord works in ways that are bewildering to us as well. The Lord has always wanted to be in the midst of his people. Can you say amen? In the Garden of Eden, the Lord walks with Adam and Eve. Uh, he is with them in his manifest presence through the Ark of the Covenant that's in the tent or the tabernacle of Moses. He is in the Ark in the tent or the tabernacle of David. His manifest presence occurs whenever Solomon's temple is completed. It's poured out and the priests could not even stand to minister. The Bible says in John 14, the, the Word of God was made flesh and dwelt or literally tented among us. And so Jesus himself has manifested himself as we heard on Sunday. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus has tented among us. God is also in us by his spirit in the new covenant era. The promise of God in the book of Ezekiel and then repeated in Hebrews says, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And then we read that in eternity that the tent of God is with men. The tabernacle of God is with men, and God and the Lamb are in the midst of the eternal city, which is actually composed of his people. It's like what Mary must have felt whenever the angel came. She had an angelic visitation. Talk about out of the norm, right? 
uh, a virgin would conceive and bring forth. And the angel said, you're going to call his name Yeshua, the Savior, Son of the Most High, and he will inherit the throne of David. Talk about bewildering cognitive dissonance. Amen. In Luke 1, 29 to 35, Mary was greatly troubled at his words, the words of the angel, and, and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You'll conceive and give birth to a son. You're to call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Wow. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And Mary said, how will this be? Talk about bewildering times. The times were changing. This was outside of the norm. God delights in coming outside of the norm. In fact, he doesn't operate in the norm in some sense. Of course, you know, he ordained heaven and earth and the seasons. There is predictivity. There is uh, continuation of seasons and times, and those are all in the Father's hands. There is some regularity to life, but we should not be unaware that sometimes the Lord decides to move outside of the normal processes and the natural process of, of life in order to accomplish his purposes. And when he does that, that's a bewildering experience. So then the second question that I have is, what is liminal space? What do I mean by liminal space or liminality? Quite simply, Mary was put into a liminal space, which was a threshold between the promise of having the Son of God and the fulfillment, right, of all that he was going to be, the Savior, the King, the eternal ruler, all of those things. Mary was put in this space. Liminal means the threshold, right? It's like standing in a doorway between two rooms, the room where you were and the room into which you are going. You're standing in the threshold, and that's called liminal space. So liminal space is a place of transition from one place to another. That's where Mary found herself in after the angel visitor. She was standing in the threshold of a doorway between the, the promise of God and the fulfillment of Jesus the Messiah. It's like stopping at the fork in the road and you're in a place of transition from one place to another, either in your circumstances or a move physically from one place to another or in your own heart and mind. Someone said the other day at men's Bible study, and it really spoke to me, he said, whenever we move from one position in Christ or one aspect of relationship with Christ to the next that he has in store for us, we have to have one foot in our past and one foot in our future. So we don't let go of the past until we're ready to step into our future. The past is our foundational experience and teaching in the Word of God that gives us the opportunity to step forward into the new thing that God is doing. Behold, he says, 
in Isaiah, I will do a new thing. God is always doing a new thing. And Pastor Ron, uh, uh, I'm quoting Pastor Ron in a lot of his sermons, uh, that he says, God is, is in the business of doing new things. Amen. You could call the state of liminality, and don't be thrown off by the word, the state of transition, the space, the time between what is already and what is not yet. All right? The, the space between what is already true and what is not yet true. We are in that space as the body of Christ. We are already in the place in Christ where it says we are blessed with all blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus in Ephesians 1.3. But yet we know that we have, have yet to receive everything that has been promised to us ultimately in the eternal state, right? So in a sense, the church is in a continual state of liminality or change or at the threshold of change. I think the world is at a threshold of change right now. I think that God is up to something, <laughs> you know? I really do. I trust the Lord with our future. It may not look exactly what we had hoped it would be or what we think it would be, but I trust God with our future. Amen? I trust God with our future. And it, and it, and it may be different. And yes, it is bewildering. George Eldon Ladd's theology, his New Testament theology, talks about the already and the not yet. Oscar Kuhlman, a German theologian, wrote a book called Christ and Time many decades ago and using the imagery of Christ as the midpoint that inaugurates a new division of time, kind of like B.C. and A.D., then he suggested these metaphors that between the already and the not yet, there are a whole series of events that happen. And he gives the illustration of World War II. On D-Day, whenever the thousands of men and the tons of materiel invaded the coast of France, everybody that had any insight into what was going on knew that the sheer juggernaut of the Allied troops was, was meaning that, that, that Germany would lose the war. The Allied, the, uh, the powers, uh, the, uh, forget what they're called, but anyway, the other powers would lose their war, right? Germany and its allies would lose the war. But yet the fighting was still ongoing. So D-Day was the first, the first understanding that, that the war was won on D-Day by the sheer advance of the Allied troops. But there were many, many months of fighting until Victory Day, right? And so we have this state of transition from the beginning to the end. From the already it's apparent to the not yet stage. It's already and not yet. And very much so we are in a stage where the power of God um, will one day be evident to all as he totally renovates creation at the coming of Christ and we will, we will see with our own eyes and participate in the glorious manifestation of the sons of God at the appearing of our Lord and Savior. But we're not, even though that event is assured, we're not there yet. 
But yet we live in the promise of the already. It is a solid truth. 1 John 1.3 says, Dear friends, now are we the children of God. Are you a child of God tonight? And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Amen. In his ministry, Jesus fought and won the D-Day at the cross, but the war will continue until the victory day at his coming. And we see this also in Jesus' parables, the parable of the sower, the seed growing secretly until eventually it just rises up and overtakes everything, the mustard seed and the leaven, the tares and the wheat, the dragnet, the beginning and the end, all within the process. So talk about liminality. My living room was in a liminal state a few weeks ago. Uh, it was stuck in the threshold between Christmas decorations and normal life. The tree was up with only half the normal lights working and no decorations. It stayed that way for a couple of days. Well, Felicia and I were just busy. My mind was stuck, though, between normalcy and pressing through into the Christmas state of affairs. I stared at that tree for two solid, three solid, four solid nights and anguished over whether I should just take it all down and put it back in the storage shed without without putting it all together. I anguished over it because I was, you know, in a state of a cognitive dissonance over the continuance of the tree decoration. And so uh, we had a lot on our plate. It was going to take extra energy to get Christmas up and going, not only physically but mentally. And then I was struggling, and this is what caught me in this, this mid, midpoint state, is I was struggling with perfectly good light sets that suddenly fail for no reason. Anybody been there? Why do 22-year-old rated LED bulbs stop working after five years? Why do I have to buy LED string light sets? I want to save energy and money, but will they last long enough to justify the extra cost for them? Given my experience, I'm not so convinced. Why do manufacturers seem to inject planned obsolescence into their products, forcing us to go back on Amazon or back to Walmart or wherever? Why do we acknowledge the power of sheer entropy when we rate some manufactured goods in terms of MTBF? That's not a chemical. <laughs> that is the mean time between failures. Even hard drives are rated that way, MTBF, mean time between failures. In other words, they are going to fail at some point in the future, but you have to buy it anyway. I'm in a state of cognitive dissonance. Confusion, bewildering. When we're born again, we move from the old life of sin to new life in Christ. There are old ways of thinking that we need to leave behind and we need to embrace new ways to think the mind of Christ, the Word of God, and we need to embrace new ways to conduct ourselves. We live for new purposes 
for the glory of God and for the hearts and souls of others to advance the gospel and the rule and the reign of God in the lives of our own hearts and other people. To paraphrase Pastor Ron, God doesn't ask our permission before he upsets our plans or before he initiates things that bring about change. And in a number of his sermons, as I mentioned, he says the Lord's going to do a new thing. Amen. From the book of Isaiah. Like when the children of Israel were set free from bondage in Egypt, the Lord brought them out to bring them through, to bring them in. Amen. So they were, in a, they were thrust into the wilderness. They were redeemed from slavery. That was their old life. But when they came out, they were thrust into this liminal state that was the threshold between the land of bondage and the land of promise. And God changed everything in that one redemptive act. They were to build a new center of worship, the tabernacle with the ark. They were to adopt new instructions on how to worship. They were provided new and different food, daily bread and manna. According to the books of Exodus and Numbers, they traveled to at least 42 different campsites in 40 years. God kept them mobile. In some aspects, they were in a liminal state, a state of change on the threshold of, of the new and leaving behind the old for 40 whole years. And really only two out of the thousands that were redeemed made it into the land of promise, made it to the next stage. Why? Because Egypt was still very much in the souls and hearts of the children of Israel. This is a great lesson for us. God ejects us from a life of slavery to sin, brings us out, forgives us of our sin, applies his blood to us, says, you're my child, I've redeemed you, I brought you out with my mighty hand, I'm taking you out of the life of sin, I'm ejecting you from the world's system, but yet we still struggle with the mindset of Egypt in our hearts and the way we think and the way we act. And Israel, despite great leadership and miracles and the judgments of God and the intercession of Moses and the manifest presence of God in the pillar of fire and the cloud of his glory, still Israel would not adopt and adapt to the new thing God was doing. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us about that and, and warns us and says, you know, listen, they were all baptized in the cloud and the sea. They followed Moses. The rock that was Christ followed them in the wilderness. But yet they were laid astray, led astray. So in liminal space, we all have the same tendency. We can misunderstand the Lord's ways. We misinterpret the Lord's actions. We misinform ourselves about our past, present, and future. And then we build our own echo chambers resonating wrong conclusions about our th uh, from our thoughts or those around us who agree with us. Plutarch talks about Alcibiades, uh, this young, upcoming, amazing young man who had surrounded himself only with those who would enthusiastically support him and flatter him all the time. 
And Plutarch says this made him impervious to Socrates' greater wisdom because all that Alcibiades had done is surround himself with this echo chamber that told him how good he was all the time until Socrates was able to break through that wall of flatterers to really give this young man some great advice, some of which he took to heart and some he didn't. So we misunderstand, misinterpret, and misinform ourselves numerous times through life. Dr. Carmen Imes discusses the concept in her, her book, Bearing His Name, and she talks about the echo chamber of the desert in the wilderness and enumerates a few of the voices that ricochet off Mount Sinai. She talks about the, the sullen among, those who are you know, depressed among the children of Israel. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Some people just want to go back to the old way and die. We need a changed mind. The skeptic, if was God's fault. He made it, it was a, with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. They blamed God. And then there was the jubilant. Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the land of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh. What a, a wide range. But we find ourselves in almost all three spots sometimes, don't we? In this state of misunderstanding about how what God is doing and we're in a state of transition and a state of change and we have this this bewilderment about what God is doing we have to caution ourselves not to get depressed and say I should have died back there this ain't worth it or we get the skeptic it's God's fault that I'm in this situation Adam you gave me the woman so a number of years ago, I had this experience where there was a very popular uh, um, choir song that was being sung in a number of churches, and it was based on the concept of moving with the cloud of God's glory, the children of Israel in the wilderness. When they saw the cloud of God's glory lift and move, then they started packing up their tents and all their things because they knew it was time to trek to the next campsite in the wilderness. And so the song said, move with the clouds. The cloud of glory is moving. Move with the clouds. Move with the cloud, you know? It was an inspiring, big choir song, you can imagine. Or not, perhaps. With my singing, you may not be, want to imagine anything except a better voice. But anyway, so... Uh, so I told one of my friends who was a worship leader in another church in another city about this song, and I shared it with her and said, man, you ought to do this like for a choir special at the next convention you guys are having, you know? So she liked the song and decided to teach it to her choir, so she taught it to the choir. Later, when I asked her how things went, she said, well, the congregation didn't understand it. I said, didn't understand it? What are you talking about? Well, they just didn't like it. They didn't understand it. I said, well, Why? She said, well, instead of the congregation hearing the actual words, the cloud of glory is moving, move with the cloud, move with the cloud, they heard the cows of glory are mooing, moo with the cows, moo with the cows. True story. I did not make this up. Moo with the cows. We misinterpret stuff, don't we? 
So often we interpret our experiences and opportunities by using our value system derived from our old life before we came to Jesus. We often fail to listen to the word of God, our wisdom or wisdom from those who love Jesus and have lived consistently for him. Or we simply formulate God's will for ourselves by following our heart or using only common sense. No, this is not the way. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked outside of Christ, despite our best intentions. As it is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There was no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. This is the condition of a person outside of Jesus Christ. And so when we try to ferret our way through our, our, our threshold of, of change, we shouldn't rely on worldly wisdom in the old ways. We all need to come to Jesus, to believe on him, to receive him as Savior and Lord, to be saved and changed and forgiven and to start a new life in him. Amen. So how do we thrive in liminal space? I'm going to hurry. The example of David, all in the plan and purpose of God. Here's David, suddenly thrown into the public arena, from a simple shepherd and psalmist, a protector of sheep, to suddenly protector of God's people, his sheep. Suddenly anointed by the prophet Samuel above his brothers to be the next king of Israel. Given amazing public victory over Goliath and the noted leader of victory over the Philistines to in future battles, given prominence over King Saul, found himself in the king's palace playing his instrument and singing in order to help King Saul be relieved, be, be relieved of his delusion as he was influenced by evil spirits, his demonic torment. And then he was almost killed by Saul. Then he's chased all over the place. So here we have David, this young, this apparently young, younger shepherd boy, anointed and called to be the next king of Israel, and then he's thrust into this state of change where almost nothing makes sense. He's risen to high victories, and then he's being tried, tried to be killed and chased by the current king. Can you imagine what he felt like? And then all the guys that wanted to help him were distressed, discontented, and in debt, and they all came to him. What a motley crew. How did he survive? First of all, the ark of God's presence was one key. David went and got the ark, brought it back. They didn't seek it at all during the days of Saul. The Philistines had destroyed Shiloh or Shiloh, where the ark had been housed for, you know, two or three hundred years, and they took the ark, but David brought it back. He got worshipers together, they offered sacrifices, but then the judgment of God came because they didn't do it right. So they put the ark aside. To, uh, here's another hassle, right? God, I'm doing this your way. What's going on? You know, when you're in a transitional time of life, sometimes even, even with the best of intentions, bad stuff happens, right? So then Obed-Edom encouraged David. David goes back and gets the ark. He gets further instruction. So how do we survive the bewilderment of a transitional time period in our lives? First, we shut down our old echo chamber. Then 
Don't be afraid, the angel told Mary. Amen. Then we establish new patterns of thought and action, put on the mind of Christ, get rid of the world's ways. We get that from the Word of God. We establish a new story. What is our story? Our story is, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Jesus saved me, took me out of the ways of darkness, delivered me from sin, death, hell, and the grave, and gave me eternal life, and now I live solely for his purposes and kingdom. That's a new story. The Lord brings us out. We esteem the worship of the Lord in our house, in our life, regularly, organized, in community, publicly, in church. We listen to other godly voices. We esteem the presence of the Lord. And like Mary, let us say, be it unto me according to your word. So we say Merry Christmas. God bless you. We love you.